Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 31. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. This is the word of God. Okay, uh, we're gonna, um, we've been looking at uh, the book of Mark uh, as we enter into Lent. And what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks is to look at some of Jesus's most critical statements about the meaning of his death. And how do you know it's the most critical or of the most critical uh, text? It's because in the Gospels, whenever Jesus wants to say something, whenever he wants to teach something that's critical, he uses the word amen. Uh, it's the word that, in Greek that's used. It's a tough word to translate in the English language. Uh, in the NIV, which is what uh, it's printed in your bulletins, the New International Version, um, it's translated as I tell you the truth. Other translations use, if you use older translations of the Bible, truly, truly, I say to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Uh, and basically what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen. I want you to listen carefully because I'm about to tell you something that's very important. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Today, we're looking at a text where he says it twice. There are two amen statements. And we're going to compare and contrast them because they kind of serve as bookends of our text today, of our lesson today, because if you grasp what Jesus is actually saying in these amen statements, you're going to grasp what it means to know him. You're going to grasp what it means to be a Christian. And that, can, and that means that you can experience incredible changes in your life. Now, there are three things we're going to look at. Very, very simple, very pedantic. Uh, the first amen statement, the second amen statement, the implications. The first amen statement, the second amen statement, and then how that shapes us, the implications. First, uh, the first amen statement, uh, verse 25, he says this. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, what's he saying here? To paraphrase, he's saying this. I am committed to my people. I am radically committed to you. If you look at the impact of what he's saying, he's saying when he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. Remember, Jesus had just been eating. He had just been drinking. This is the Passover feast. He had just been eating. He had just been drinking. And now he makes this vow. He says, I will not drink again. I will not eat again until we are with him. Now, think, when, when you say, when, you, when anyone says, I will not eat again, I will not drink again, they're basically saying, I will not rest until... There's nothing more important than this. That's what they're saying. This is very critical. There's nothing more important than what I'm about to say. That's what he's saying. Because we need to eat for life. 
we need to drink for life. So basically what he's saying is this is more important than anything that I'm, I'm going to do. This is more important than anything, even my own life. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying this is my greatest priority. I'm totally committed to get you back with me, to get you home with me. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at the love of Christ. But that's not even it. That's not all. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's what it says. Why is that important? It's because that's the end of the meal. He just cuts it off right there. Remember, this is the Passover meal. If you were here last week, Brian uh, preached, uh, and what he, he laid out for us the importance of the Passover meal, the annual remembrance of the great rescue of God's people. That's what the Passover represents, bringing people out of slavery in Egypt Thousands of years ago in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12, God calls his people to remember his rescue of his people through a meal. It was the last meal that they had the night before they were rescued. And there were always three elements in that meal. The first, there was the bread. It was always unleavened bread. The reason why it was unleavened is because it reminded you of urgency. Hurry up! Urgency of time. So there was this urgency and this sobriety here. And the presider would say as he's passing out the bread, this is the bread of our affliction. This is the bread of the affliction of our forefathers in Egypt while we were in the wilderness as we were rushed out. So you had the bread. Second, you had the wine. You passed around the cup four times to represent the four promises that God made to his people before they escaped from Egypt. And the four promises go like this in Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to rid you of your slavery, your oppression, your bondage. I'm going, to, I'm going to pay the redemption price for you. And lastly, I'm going to take you away to be my people. Those are the four promises. Lastly, the third thing, there was the lamb. Now, if you think about the best meal, Philadelphia has wonderful restaurants, right? If you think about the best meals, you start with bread, you have wine, and then you have the meal. The entree, the meat. The, the entree is usually uh, some, some form of meat. Here, because that's the centerpiece, right? The centerpiece of the meal. And here in this meal, in the Passover feast, it was supposed to be the lamb. Because the night before the Passover feast, God promised to send an angel of judgment. The angel was to come into Egypt, and the sword of judgment was going to fall on all the people in Egypt. Now, God didn't say, I'm going to kill all the bad people. I'm going to kill all the irreligious people. I'm going to kill all the sinning people. But I like you. I like you people because you're good and you're moral and you're obedient. So I don't want you to have to worry. I'm just going to kill the bad people. That's not what he said. Why doesn't he say that? Instead, he says, I want every family among you to kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts. That's what he says. What does that mean? One thing it means is that God, God does not just send an angel to kill the bad people off, to kill the bad race, to kill people with bad religion. But the second thing that God means when he does this, when he says this, is he's saying, I'm going to send judgment on everyone. That means everybody deserves judgment. Everybody deserves a sword. Everybody deserves to die unless God makes provision God makes a provision. God makes himself a way 
for people to be saved, for people to be spared. God's saying, if I send an angel, I'm going to send this angel to judge, and he's going to judge everybody. He's going to judge everybody in the land. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody deserves my wrath. Everybody deserves to die. Everybody deserves a sword unless there's a provision that's made for your sins. And there was. And it was the lamb. And so you killed this lamb and you placed, you smeared this blood on the doorposts. And you were to take shelter then underneath the blood of the lamb. And the angel, as it would come over, it would pass over those who had the blood, who were hiding underneath the blood. And so every Passover, you had the bread. Every Passover, you had the wine. Every Passover, you had the lamb. And the disciples, though, here in this Passover, they would have been taken aback by this. Why? Because this is the Passover. They would have been taken aback. Because one, Jesus never says, if you read this passage, Jesus never says, this is the bread of the affliction of our forefathers. What he says is counter to that. He says, this is the, cu- this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my body. He doesn't say, this is the cup of God's redemption, of his promises. He says, this is the cup of my redemption, my covenant, my promises, my blood that will be poured out for you. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, all the way back in the Old Testament, God says, don't ever change the Passover. You are not to take anything away from the Passover. The Passover was actually one of the three mandatory meals, perpetual mandatory meals in Jewish history. They still observe it. In my alma mater, they actually reserve an entire week for the Passover. God said, don't ever change the Passover ever. And yet here's Jesus. He changes it. What's he saying about himself? Because what he's saying is the only person who has the right to change the Passover is the person who gave the original order. And that's what he's claiming. He's claiming to be God. There's the bread. There's the wine. Each time he changes what's being said, when he passes out the bread, when he passes out the wine, when he distributes the wine, he's changing it each time. And then all of a sudden, he's done. He says, let's go. And they go sing at the Mount of Olives. There's no lamb. Now, if you're Jewish and you observe the Passover every year, and you had to. If you're Jewish culturally, you observe the Passover every year. You would immediately notice anything that has changed. Why? Because nothing ever changes in the Passover. Nothing ever is supposed to change. Here, there's no lamb. There's no actual meal. In fact, if you've ever been to Metro, we've been to any other church for that matter, you would know that the Lord's Supper is actually not much of a meal. We were, gonna, we were debating whether or not we wanted to do this today because we're going to be doing it next week, right? You would know that the Lord's Supper isn't much of a meal. It's not like after the Lord's Supper goes around, everyone just goes home and they're full. That's not what happens. After it's over, everyone goes out to eat. There's no meal. And that's what the disciples here would have said. Where is the meal? Why did Jesus leave out the lamb? And the reason why Jesus leaves out the lamb is because he is the lamb. There's no lamb on the table because the true lamb, the ultimate lamb, is at the table. The lamb is the centerpiece. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb. What he's saying is, yes, the rescue from Egypt was great, but it's only a signpost. It's only a pointer. I'm about to deliver my people from the ultimate bondage, from the ultimate slavery from the ultimate death, from the ultimate suffering, from sin, from death, from evil itself. Those other lambs, they were, necessarily, they were necessary so that you would realize that we're only saved by God's provision. We're only saved by grace. 
Every family that would put the blood up there on the doorpost, they would be saying, I'm not saved by my works. I'm not saved because I'm better than the Egyptians. I'm not saved because I'm less sinful than the Egyptians. We're all sinners that are saved by God's sheer grace, by God's grace alone. The lamb was just a provision. Jesus saying, I'm the ultimate lamb that would do away all the lambs. So when John the Baptist in John chapter 1 first encounters Jesus, he was anticipating meeting Jesus, he finally encounters Jesus Christ. When he meets him, he says in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is saying this, I, I tell you the truth. I am so committed to you that I will die for you. I will pay for your sins. I will pay the redemption price. I will live up and be faithful to my promises. That's why it's the blood of my covenant. That's why it's the blood of your redemption, my covenant. I am the sacrifice. Take shelter underneath my blood and you will be saved. Now, there are people here that are thinking, I'm kind of glad you said that because blood is primitive, right? This is all kind of primitive. This is old religion, right? The blood spilling and it's kind of dirty and messy. Very primitive. It sounds very ancient to me. It sounds very ancient culture to me. It makes God look very vindictive and I don't like that. And so, you know, we like to say, well, we're beyond all that now. God is a God of love, right? We kind of figure that out now, right? God is a God of love, right? On one hand, yes, God is a God of love. Jesus says, I'm not here to make you pay to earn God's favor. I'm here to pay. My mission is to redeem you from sin as your substitute, as the lamb. So yes, on one hand, Jesus is the lamb. He is the sacrifice by sheer grace. But on the other hand, if you're saying, I'm glad you said that because I don't really like that we need sacrifices. I don't really want to believe that in this concept of blood sacrifices because God is a God of love. I want to suggest to you that the God you believe is not as loving as the God in the Bible. I want to suggest to you that. Why? Because the God that you're talking about there, his love costs him nothing. But doesn't doesn't God just love everybody? I mean, God is a God of love. He loves everybody, right? Well, if that's the case, think about this. Uh, one, God, that kind of God really can't protect you. That kind of God really can't comfort you when you're suffering uh, at the hands of evil. That kind of God can't be just. That kind of God, evil will win. If God is a God that just loves everybody and that love bears no cost, then everybody is under that love. There is no bias, right? That means evil and injustice win because God just loves everybody. This kind of God will never be empathic. This kind of God will never be passionate for you. This kind of God is not just, will not be faithful, will not be powerful, and ultimately will not be truly loving. The Christian God says, I have been so deeply hurt The Christian God says, I've been so deeply betrayed. I've been rebelled against by my people, the people that I love the most. Now, anyone who's ever been betrayed knows. If you've ever been betrayed by somebody you deeply love, can you just love? Can you just forgive? No, somebody's got to pay. Either you're going to swallow the pain yourself and you're paying the price, or there's retribution and they're going to pay the price. You can't just love. You can't just forgive. You want blood. 
God says, I've been so deeply betrayed, but I will, I've been so deeply betrayed by my people, but I will still not let that stop me from loving them. I will pay. I will die. Our God hurts. Our God empathizes with your loss. Our God empathizes with suffering. Why? Because he suffered. Because he lost his own son. Because he lost his own people. Because he had been betrayed by his people. Our God truly understands the cost to forgive because he died for his enemies. And then he said, nothing will ever stop me from loving you. So the first point, really, Jesus is basically saying, I will never let you down. I will never let you down. I will never let you go. One of the things I always say, it's a pleasure of mine to be an uncle, right, to my nephews. One of the things I always say, actually, uh, you know, whenever he's over my house, whenever he stays over my house, I always say to him, I repeat to him over and over, he's like five. He doesn't even really understand the depths of what you say to him when you, when you say you love him, right? But I say him over and over to the point where now he knows I'm going to say it, and I ask him to repeat it. I said, don't ever forget, Jaden, don't ever forget. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never betray you. I will always love you. Our God, Jesus is basically saying here, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I don't want you to ever forget that. I tell you the truth. Don't ever forget. I am totally, radically committed to you. Now, the second amen statement, second point, verse 30, I tell you the truth. You yourself will disown me. That's what he says. In other words, on one hand, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I am radically, lovingly committed to you. But on the other hand, I tell you the truth, the second equal amen, you will always let me down. You will always disown me. You need to know this. You need to know this if you're thinking about who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian because those two statements make up the Christian life. Jesus is saying, I'm committed to you regardless how committed to me you are. I'm committed to, I will be faithful to you even though you are unfaithful to me. And, uh, you know, if you look at verse 27, he says, you will all fall away. You will all fall away. Verse 28, but after I'm risen, I will go ahead and meet you in Galilee. In other words, I'm not going to let your unfaithfulness mess up my faithfulness to you. You will definitely let me down, but I can't wait to see you. After I come back, I'm going to see you. Jesus will never let us down, even though we will always let him down. In other words, uh, salvation, is not, salvation does not rely on your commitment. I grew up thinking in the church that salvation relied on my commitment, that you've know, got to work to earn God's favor. You've got to work to stay committed or else God will forget you. But salvation really relies on God's commitment to us, his radical, faithful, loving commitment to his people. But don't we need to have faith? Yes. But now you understand. Now you see what faith really is. Faith, I used to think that you need to exercise faith in order to get saved, in order to get salvation. But see, if you think like that, you're still working. You're still paying the price. It's not grace. You're still paying the price. 
You're still saying, I got to get to a certain point spiritually so that I can make myself acceptable to God. There are a lot of people who refuse to walk into a church because they feel like they have to be in a certain place before they feel clean enough to walk in. You're still paying the price. You're still working to make yourself acceptable to God. And that's why when you fail, you just beat yourself up. And that's why when you succeed, we're arrogant and we look down on other people. That's what happens, you see. In Mark chapter 9, there's this boy and he's possessed. Uh, He's possessed by demons. And so the boy's throwing himself into the fire, drowning himself in water. And this father, this poor father, just broken by seeing his son's affliction, brings him to Jesus because the kid is totally out of control. Now the Bible's trying to show us that's us in a spiritual state. That's us before we come to know Christ. So this boy is brought to Jesus. And the father brings uh, him to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus says, you know, what do you want? And the father says, I want my son to be healed. And Jesus says, well, all things are possible to those who believe. And, and this father says, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And Jesus heals him. What he's saying is, listen, Jesus, I am filled with doubts. I'm filled with uncertainty. I am filled with fear. This world makes no sense to me anymore. I'm filled with unbelief. You have to help me. What does Jesus say? Well, I want you to go back. And I know this is a little uncomfortable for you, but I want you to go pray more, pray a little harder, do some more good things, and then come back with your son, and I'll heal him. Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. I want you to go back, and you need to work on your faith. Before, how, how dare you even come up to me? You're not even in a good place to talk to me. Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. He heals his son. Why? Because real faith, real faith is a faith that says, true saving faith is what? I'm filled with fear. I'm filled with doubt. Help me. Help me. It's saying I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm afraid. I'm angry. I thought I knew everything. I realized I know nothing. I'm doubting. I'm doubting myself. I'm doubting everything around me. Help me because I can't figure this out. That's, that's what real faith says. And I'm desperate for your, for your help. Now I'm going to give you a silly illustration you're running from a, a polar bear. Why would you ever be running from a polar bear? You're running from a polar bear. Uh, you get to this cliff, right? And uh, you realize this polar bear is coming at you, and you get to this cliff, and uh, you look down this cliff, and it's, it's like Colorado it's like, or, or like Aspen, you know? Um, there's nice, beautiful padded snow that you know that if you just jump off, it seems deep enough to, to take the impact, and you can run away scot-free. If you jump, you may die but there's this padded snow and it's there for you. How much faith do you need in that snow for that snow to save you? Do you have to wait until you're fully confident? Is that what it depends on? Does it rely on how much you believe? Because you just need enough faith to jump because that faith is about the direction right? The object, the subject, so much as how much, how much, the magnitude. Faith is more about direction than it's about magnitude or strength. What saves you is not your faith. It's the landing place. It's the ground beneath. What you stand on has to be strong, has to be firm, has to be secure, and yet soft for you. That's Jesus. That's the cross. 
That's who saves us. Faith connects you to Christ. So what you didn't see before, you now see. And you're weak. And that's why God even gives us faith. The order of salvation is what? Grace, right? It is by grace you have been saved. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians. If you're new here, um, before we took this brief interlude uh, to go into this period of Lent, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. God gives us the grace. He says, this is not even from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Even your faith is a gift. And then he says, for we're created to be God's workmanship. Right? Then it's works. That order has to be very, very clear. Grace through faith works. And God provides those. Faith connects you to Christ, even though it works. Why is, why, why is that important? It's because a lot of people here, they say, well, I know God is committed to me. I know God is faithful to me. But now I need to be committed to him. I need to pay him back. And we get tripped up because we're not faithful to him. Or because we're always failing, we're always messing up. And Jesus says this. He said it right here. I know you will disown me. I know you will be unfaithful to me. I tell you the truth. He says it emphatically. I tell you the truth. Now remember, Jesus is not speaking to vagrants. He's not speaking to irreligious people. Who is he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, people who believe in him, people who have professed their lives to him. And he says, you will disown me. We will disown him. We're going to let him down. Jesus says, on one hand, first point, I will never let you down. On the other hand, second point, you will always let me down. But all you need is to need him. If anything, you have to believe that your faith sucks. You have to believe that your trust in Jesus sucks. I'll say it in a much more elegant way, through him. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to what? My works I cling? Simply to what? My faith I cling? Simply to thy cross I cling. I'm broken. I'm confused. I'm lost. I'm sinful. I need Jesus. That's real faith, a faith that brings you to Christ. If you believe in the first point that Jesus will never let you down, and then you believe the second point that you will always let Jesus down, you take those two amen statements together, that's going to bring you to the third point, the implications. How will that shape your life? If you believe the first two amen statements, you can be a Christian. You can be. There's going to be power to live a new life. If you believe both statements, you're not going to explode or you're not going to implode when you make a bad mistake, when you make bad decisions. You're not going to give up on Christ. You're not going to say, Jesus, God gave up on me because he hasn't. He will never leave you. But you will also not give up, you see. But you will give in. You won't give up, but you will give in. One of the reasons why people give up is because they still believe that Jesus' commitment to you is based on your commitment to him. So when you mess up, you assume, one, I need to work my way back in, or you're going to say, I am committed, and I've been praying, and I've been praying for these certain things, and my prayers have not been answered, and I've been going through a lot of suffering, and God has disappointed me. Jesus has let me down. But Jesus said, I will not let you down, you see. And 
you actually think you're so committed, but you always let me down. You will always mess up. You will always fail. You don't know that your sin is great, but my love is greater, you see. A lot of times we look at Jesus and we say, our prayers have not been answered. I've been faithful. Our prayers have not been answered. Uh, Jesus owes me because I never let him down. But really what you're doing is you're still thinking about, you're still relying on your commitment to Christ more so than his commitment to you. So you need to look at both amen statements together. And what happens if you do is two things. One, you won't give up, but you will give in. Surrender. Notice Jesus begins these statements with amen. Now, if you've ever prayed a prayer in your life, you never begin your statements with amen, right? You never begin your prayers with amen. You end your prayers with amen, right? You say something, you pray to God, and then you end those statements with amen. Because what the word amen means, it comes from these ancient uh, times in the synagogue when the elders in the synagogue would listen to the person teaching, a rabbi who's teaching, and they would weigh out carefully because they were, they were teachers in the law, they were teachers in God's word, they would weigh out what these teachers are saying. And after they've weighed out, after they've measured, after they've validated what these teachers are saying, they would end what the teaching is saying. The teacher would say something, they would say amen at the end. Some of us hear that even in the churches, right, that we attend today, right? We, they say amen at the end because what they're saying is, I've carefully thought through what you've said, I've weighed it out, and I deem it, I certify it as truth. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus taught, and he says amen to himself in the beginning. That's what he does. No one else in all the Gospels, no one else does that in the Bible. Why? It's because Jesus Christ is the authority. He doesn't need validation. He is the authority. In fact, there's this passage in the Gospel according to Matthew where Jesus is teaching, and the text says that he taught as one with authority. And the word authority in the Greek there is the word author. He taught as the one who wrote God's word. He taught as the author. So Jesus, by saying amen, what he's saying is, I have authority over everything. Even you, I have authority. My words are truth. What I'm about to tell you is not just some true thing that you can validate. It is truth. And I'm taking away anyone's right to validate me. I'm taking away your right to sit there and validate me because you can't validate me. In other words, what he's saying is what? Submit to me. Submit to my words. Give in. Now, in our generation, as all generations in the past, we don't like to give in. We don't like to submit. We love to ask, but why? Parents, we have a lot of young parents here. You need to understand that one day you're going to tell your kids something, you know, don't go out tonight, and they're going to say, why? Why? You've done that as a kid, right? Why? Because their logic goes like this. If you just give me one reason why I need to obey you, I'll think it through, and I'll agree with you, and I'll understand, and I'll obey. But you see, as a parent, you have to be wise. You have to teach them well. You have to say, I'm taking away your right to validate me as your parent. I have authority over you. I don't have to give you a reason. I am your parent. I am your mother. I'm your father. Because really what they want is they want to be their own authority. They want to be able to validate you. So really what they're doing is by asking you why, what they're saying is they're actually interviewing you to see if you deserve the right to be their parent. Jesus says, no. 
I bought you with a price. I own you. I am an author over you. I am the authority over you. In fact, I'm the author, period. So my word is truth. My word is real. Now, friends, of course, Jesus wants you to serve. Of course, he wants to use you for his will. Of course, he wants you to obey. Of course, he wants you to follow according to the way you were designed to live. But what he really wants is your life. What he really wants is your heart, right? Because nothing is more delightful. Uh, Obedience is never easier than when you obey because you love as a response, right? Uh, It's almost a a reflex. It's almost a, a response. A responsive action like that to love is a reflexive thing, right? It's almost instinctive. He wants you to stop fighting over control for your life. He wants you to say, I surrender to you. I'm submitting to you uh, uh, because you are a wise king, because you are a wise God, because you want what's best and you know what's best for me more than I would know myself. Anything else, you say anything else, you're really acting like Adam or Eve all the way back in the Garden of Eden. You know what they did? Essentially, when Adam and Eve, when Eve was questioning you know, the Satan uh, comes in the form of a serpent and says, did God really say that? And Eve looks at this fruit and says, it says in the Bible, it says that the fruit looked good in her eyes. Really what she's saying is, does God really have my best interests in mind for me? Because wouldn't I know what's best for me more than him? This is my life. And ever since then, we've been fighting for control over our lives with God. So to say anything other than I surrender, to say anything other than I submit because you are a wise king, because you are a loving king, and you would know better than me what's best for me, what you're really saying is, would I be more happy listening to myself as opposed to listening to God? How do you come to grips with somebody who's given himself totally to you without you giving yourself totally to him? And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Therefore, offer your lives, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Give in. That's what he's saying. Give in. The second thing is you can rest in him. So on one hand, you can give in. You can surrender to him. Secondly, you can rest in him. You don't have to work so hard to prove yourself to be acceptable to God because you're already loved. You're already accepted. And the life that flows out of knowing, you know, religion says this. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If you live like that, you will work to prove yourself at every level in your life, whether it's as a parent in your careers, you are working. It's a spiritual thing. It's a cosmic thing. And if you're not able to prove yourself, that's why we're so down on ourselves when we're, when we're out of a job, when we're down on ourselves, when we failed at something. But Christianity, the gospel says, you are accepted by God, wholly loved by God, more than you could ever imagine, and therefore we obey. That, re, that reflexive life, that responsive life to the gospel is what leads to joy. You can rest in him. You don't have to work so hard to prove yourself. You don't have to work so hard to succeed, to be accomplished. Notice in this passage, they ate the Passover meal, 
And they all said what? We're committed to you. We're good. We're in. And Jesus says, you're all going to fail me. And they said, nope, we're in. In fact, Peter says, these, all, all these guys, they may fail you, but I will not fail you. We're going to go into that next week. He says, all these guys, I know they love you, but I really love you. That's what he was saying. We're all committed to you. Then they go, and immediately after they go, they let him down. They betray him. They abandon him. They reject him. Look at the compassion of Jesus. He knows you're going to let him down. He, these are his best friends. He's been with these 12 people for three years, invested in them, walked with them, and says, you're, he knows ahead of time, you're going to betray me. And yet, he says, I've already made a place. I'm going to meet you over there. I can't wait. And I want you to know that I will never leave you. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the compassion of Christ. We're all going to fail. We're all going to lose. We're all going to get beat up at times. We're all going to be weak. And yet, this, what Jesus says here, is a new pattern of life that he's leading us in. He's leading us in a pattern of brokenness and sacrifice. This means we're choosing where we live, right? Because this is probably a a tremendous cross-section of the city that is well-to-do. You are the intellectual, cultural elite in many ways here. This is choosing where you live, not on the basis of what makes you happy, not on the basis of what makes you safe, not on the basis of what makes you recognized, but rather on the basis of how you will shape other people through it and how you will be shaped by other people. This is choosing a career, not on the basis of how uh, how this will increase your status or increase your wealth, but what you will do with that for others. His mission, it's a pattern of sacrifice and brokenness, becomes your mission, a pattern of sacrifice and brokenness. Remember, Jesus is that type of king. Jesus is the high king, king of kings, he says. His, you know, you see this in the, uh, in the Great Commission. All authority on heaven, on earth, under the earth has been given to me. King of kings. And yet he did not come in a throne. He came in a manger. He didn't live in a palace. He actually says, the birds of the air have nests. Foxes have holes in the ground. And yet the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He was homeless. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He didn't come in strength. He came in weakness. In other words, the way up is down. And on the cross... When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is now I am making the ultimate sacrifice. And on the cross, Jesus' body became broken. And on the cross, Jesus' blood poured out for others. And on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I have become disowned, not only by my friends, not only by these people who pledged their lives to me. They abandoned me at the first opportunity. I've been rejected by my God. I've been disowned by my God. My God never let me down, even though Jesus, to the end, on the cross, totally committed, wholly faithful, He said, my God, my God, I've been disowned by you. But do you know, he didn't say it angrily. He didn't say it anxiously. He was actually reciting scripture. To the end, Jesus is faithful. He was reciting Psalm 22, one of the most prophetic psalms about Christ's brokenness and sacrifice. 
In other words, Jesus, in the midst of being disowned by his friends, disowned by his father, disowned by God, he was faithful and obedient to the end. Never let us down. Why? Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus Christ was totally rejected by God. Why? So that we could have the total commitment of God in our lives. Jesus Christ, totally, wholly committed to his people, in love with his people. And he didn't say, this is the most important thing that I have to tell you at the risk of my life. He says, I tell you the truth at the cost of my life. And he paid that price and he paid it for you and he did it in weakness and he did it in brokenness so that God would work through that brokenness, through the brokenness. Some of us, very broken here. Some of us suffering here. God, if God could could work through the ultimate brokenness, there's not a single person who stood around the cross and witnessed Christ dying, body broken, blood pouring out, and said, yeah, you know, this is a good thing. There's not a single person who said that. All the disciples abandoned him. God had forsaken him. And yet God worked through that brokenness and through that sacrifice. Why? So that we could experience new life and wholeness and healing and blessing in that. When you hide in the cross of Christ as your shelter, that's how we're saved. Do you believe that? Does that move you? John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How much work does it take to behold? It takes no work. You just look. It takes no work. Beneath the cross of Jesus... I find the place to stand and wonder at such mercy that calls me as I am. For hands that should discard me hold wounds which tell me come. Beneath the cross of Jesus, my unworthy soul was one. You never give up. You have to give in. You don't stand up. You rest. Hide in the blood of Christ. Let's pray.